0: All right, grab your Bibles. We're in the book of James, if you don't mind. James chapter 5, starting verse 1. Uh this is your first time, or you've been coming here for I don't know, the last six months, God, who's this guy? Uh, I am one of the pastors here. You just never see me. Um, I'm off doing something in Claremont, and it's fantastic. We're having a great time up there. Um, but it's always good to be back, so it's great to see you. Um, if you don't mind, we're going to pray before I open the word. And if I get real quiet before, just understand the reason um, I don't know about you sometimes I feel like when we go hey let's just pray one I don't know why we say just pray because we're talking to God that's like the greatest thing that I could do is to talk to God but then you ever notice you just kind of jump into it it's like this: pray dear God do this I feel like I'm always dictating to him I've just been convicted over the last few months that I should get quiet just as this act of submission it's like God I don't want to tell you what to do I want, I want you to do what you do And so we're just going to, I just, I don't know, I had to get to get out of my vocabulary. We're not going to just pray, we're going to pray. We're going to get quiet before him and just prepare our hearts as we look into his word. Shall we? Let's pray together. Father, we open your word not with a desire to try to change it so it fits our perspectives. But confessing to you that our perspectives are wrong. Without you and your truth, we don't know what right is. And so we don't want to try to dictate to you what you should be thinking or what you should be doing, but that you would convict and encourage whatever is necessary to make us look more and more like Jesus. So, God, I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would keep us humble to receive, to be taught. God, I pray that you keep me humble as I teach. God, I I don't want a personal agenda in any way in this. I just want you. I want you to be noticed and heard. and God, I want you to be exalted and honored. and, And so, God, if anything comes out of my mouth that's not pleasing to you, I pray we wouldn't remember anything. We just know you and know your truth. So God, thank you for penning this word that we might know you better. We pray this in Jesus' name, and everyone says, amen. As we go into James chapter 5, I think it's important as we continue to go through a book of the Bible or a letter that James wrote, we go verse by verse. Remember, it's a whole. Uh, if, you've been, if, you have a, if you have a paper Bible, <laughs> you, don't, you know what these are, uh, you have a paper Bible, most Bibles have these subheadings. That are written in there, but that's not, that's not like, it's not like James is sitting there going, okay, done, next subheading, and then write it. This is something that the publishers put in. And so what can happen is that we kind of go from verse to verse, and then we finish a section, and we see a new subheading, and then we go, oh, then this is a totally new topic. While, while James is writing, inspired by the Holy Spirit, it's just one thought he's going through. It's the same reason, I mean, the reason we write letters, you guys know what that is? Like a letter? That's just an email. But like when you write letters or emails, longer messages than just texts or Snapchats. Like when it's something that actually is going to take a while, you really expect that the person's going to read the whole thing and not just kind of pick a verse or pick a, a verse, pick a sentence out of the middle of it and go, there, there's truth. So I think we have what we have to do in order to read chapter 5, 1 to 6, we have to go back to chapter 4, starting verse 13, but really, I mean, we looked at it, I think you guys looked at it last week, we're looking at it in Claremont this week, but here's the main question, he's like, what is your life? I mean, your life is what? It's like a vapor. It's here, it's gone, it's here one moment, it's gone the next, and it's just, it just happens, and you, I, mean, I know we have certain days where you kind of go, oh man, I have one of those days, Ever have one of those days, like maybe some of you guys had it today, maybe for some of you every Sunday morning with children is one of those days. Getting ready for church, if you have the little ones, it's like, why is Sunday always like this? Just blame the devil. We don't blame it enough, just blame the devil. But it's like, it's like it, does, it feels like it's a long day, but really it's a vapor. I mean, compared to eternity, however many years you get, it's this quick. What? I just went to a funeral for a family member a few weeks ago, and every time I go to a cemetery, I always do the same thing. I don't know about you, but you look at the little headstones or whatever they're called, and I always look at the names and the descriptions, but the one thing I'm doing is I'm doing math. Anybody else do the math? And you're kind of going along, you get the person that made it like a long time, like 98, oh my gosh, yeah. How the heck did you do that? But then you go at the ones that are two, and you kind of go, seriously, God? Really? Or 12, or 28, or 60, I mean, it's like whatever, numbers we go, whatever numbers we get, we just kind of look and go, man, but you ever notice, the, we, 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 we have a start date, we have an end date, and a little dash. And yet, their whole life is represented by the dash. So even us non-eternal, well, even us limited beings understand that the dash is the life. It's such a quick thing. But don't you want the dash to matter? Like, don't you want the dash to count? It's not like people are sitting there going, wow, he was born that day. Oh, thank God he died that day. It's like we always just, we always talk about the person in the dash. We're always talking about their life. But I think we all, I think we all understand it. It's like, oh, it just goes too quick. It goes too quick. If, if you're a parent and you remember when your kids were tiny and now they're not, and you're going, what the time go? I mean, Tyler, he's like 5'9, five, 5'10. He's 13, he's like a mountain. He's giant, it's like wrestling a man. That's why I have to stretch, it's like, oh my gosh, it's not like wrestling a little kid anymore. But it's like it went by so quick. Because life is a vapor, but he asked the question, hey, what is your life? And I think it's deeper than just, hey, what is your life with regards to time? I think it's, hey, what are you about? And I think we have to ask that question as we jump into chapter 5. I think it's all connected because when you read chapter five one to six, it's like James just seems like he just kind of, kind of bad mood all of a sudden. But I figure if you're Jesus's half brother, you're the half brother of the Son of God. You can kind of say whatever you want, and get away with it. So chapter five, starting verse one, says this: "Come now, I'm just going to read through it, verses one to six. I'm not going to say anything until we go back. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted." You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. That's it, guys. Have a great day. I'm so glad you came. (laughs) Hope you're really encouraged. I mean, like you read a passage like that and go, what's wrong with you? But now here's the thing. It's like, notice how he starts. Come now, you rich. And here's what happens. We hear that phrase, and I can almost guarantee that 100% of us go, oh, that ain't me. That ain't me. If you saw my bank, I ain't rich. And so here's the thing. I'm convinced that passages like this, and the one we're going to connect in First Timothy, are the most overlooked and not applied passages in all the Bible, especially for Christians in America. And here's why. Gallup took a poll. Mr. Gallup, whoever that is, took a poll. You've heard of Gallup polls. Say, hey, on, on average how much money does a person have to have in order to be rich? And the average answer was $150,000. Now, if you don't make that much, you go, yep, that's, that's rich. If you do, you go, that ain't rich. I'm not rich. That's not rich. I have that, but I'm not rich. Because there's always someone that has more, right? I mean, you want to be best friends with the person who has all of it. It's like, oh, man, that doesn't mean anything to you. Just let me have your car. It's like, we like those people, for some strange reason, just to fill our passions, but it's like 150,000. It's like, well, that's not rich. The people that make 150,000? No, no, that's not rich. Money magazine, they asked their subscribers the same question: "Hey, how much, does, how, much do you, how much would you have to have in liquid assets in order to feel like you're rich?" Here was the average answer: In order to feel like you're rich, liquid assets, put them all together. What do you have? Five million dollars. And now those of you that have five million dollars. I don't know who that is, but most of you that might have you go, that ain't rich. If you don't, you're going, that's rich. But do you see the problem? We just keep passing that off. We pass off the command to everyone else that's not us because there's always someone richer. But do you realize, this is the truth, if as a household, not individually, but as a household, if you make between forty-four dollars and $45,000 per year, you're in the top 1% of the wage earners on the planet today. In other words, if you make forty-four to forty-five thousand dollars a year, we're the rich. Now, somebody said, "Go! I only make forty. Woohoo! You better never. You better never want to raise, because then you got to apply this stuff. Make forty-four to forty-five thousand dollars per year. You're in the top one percent of the wage earners on the planet. In other words, we could make an argument that we are the top one percent of the wealthiest people to ever walk the planet." And so all of a sudden when it says, come now, you rich, we go, ah, oh, that's them. No, no, no. Now let's read it again with us in mind because we are the rich. Now it'll hurt. Verse one, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moss-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Now stop there for just a second. There were key ways that you would, back in this day when James is writing, there were key ways. It's like three or four key ways that you would say, hey, this is how you know that you're wealthy. One is crops or livestock. Notice that he starts off with saying, your riches have rotted. So this, okay, the crops that you have, they're gone. Another one is clothing. We don't do that today, right? Your clothing is moth-eaten. And the third way is like silver or gold. He says, and your silver and gold has have corroded. Okay, so your your ways of wealth, they're gone. Now watch what he says. And you have laid up treasure in the last days. See, this is why I think it's so important for us to go back to, hey, what is your life? Instead of just reading this separate, go back and connect it. What is your life? So if your life is your riches, like if your riches are your life, you want to gain more so you can have more, Then James is saying, okay, I'm speaking to you. You've placed all of this hope and all of this stuff, but realize all of this stuff is gonna end up in a trash heap one day. No, not my family. We've had heirlooms passed down for generations. And this couch, they'll keep forever. (laughs) Really? Like you love that couch, but in reality, if I were to walk into your house, And look at that couch that you've had for 50 years. I'm not sure that I would sit on it. Like all of our memories are on that couch. And that's the thing that terrifies me. It's like all of your memories are on that couch. All of your DNA is on that couch. It's like, no, they're going to keep, they're going to keep. We just keep kind of, it's like put all of our focus on our stuff. And that's why he brings up this idea of you've laid up treasure for yourself. In the last days, you've laid up treasure It's like you're just all about this stuff. It's like you're putting everything on this and it's not even going to be around. It goes on. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, they did the work, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Oh, crud. Employers, God expects, I'm convinced by what I see here, you pay your workers. And we care for them. Why? So they work hard. Absolutely. Christians, followers of Jesus. We should be so great at working that every employer wants to hire us because we do such a great job. Because everything that we do, we're doing as unto the Lord. That means I'm not going to spend two and a half hours on Facebook pretending that it's work. But I'll actually be productive. And in every aspect, I will answer every person that comes in the same way that every Chick-fil-A employee answers. My pleasure. I mean, think about why do we go to Chick-fil-A? It's 22 bucks for a chicken sandwich. We go in there because it's my pleasure. Right? It's their pleasure. And you're like, I love you and you love me. We're best friends. Here's my mortgage. So employees, we should be the most amazing employees on the planet. Because we are doing all of our work as unto service to Jesus. And employers, you're caring for those who work. What was happening here? Hey, they did the work and they weren't paying them, and it's it's considered fraud. Like Jesus or James says, this is fraud. And realize that their cries, their groanings, are going up to the Lord of Hosts. Because you don't want that. Employers, the reason I'm I'm convinced. Bosses, the reason we're supposed to care for those that we are leading. Or those of you that have employed others, their value is based upon the fact that when God knit them together, put a stamp on them, said, Imago Dei, in the image of God. And if they're not great workers, you can fire them. If they are, oh, we should care for them. And if they've worked, you pay them. And I think we pay them well because it's as unto God. And to keep using this as an excuse, well, Brian, you just don't understand. You don't own a business. I know, and you wouldn't want me to. I mean, my checkbooks are hard enough. But this is that—is that an excuse? I mean, you sit there, and go, "Well, Brian, you don't understand. You're a pastor. You don't have a real job." <laughs> I know. I don't have a real job, I just see it as one of the most important jobs, which you get to see your job as one of the most important jobs. So we all have some, some different calling, so we can keep looking at each other going, yeah, but you don't understand my reasons, and you don't, I don't understand your reasons. Or we can look at God going, hey, he's given us a commandment, so therefore we obey, because we call ourselves followers of him. And we don't give him reasons as to why we don't. We submit to him because he's God, he's the Lord of hosts. He goes on. Says, you have lived, verse five, you have lived, you have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. That'd be one thing if this was just one passage. But then you get Paul jumping on board. In first Timothy chapter 6, this is what Paul says: Verse 17: As for the rich, now here's the thing: we all have to apply it. Remember, 44 to $45,000 per year per household. top 1% of wage earners on the planet. This is us. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Charge them, command them not to be arrogant, nor, here it is, this is the key, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. That's the key. Guys, you realize there's actually a theology out there where it says that God is against the rich. God opposes the rich. He only cares and loves the poor. I have a hard time with that passage because Job was the richest person on the planet at the time and he's, he's the most righteous person on the planet. Abraham was wealthy. Even the rich young ruler came up to Jesus and says, hey, what must I do to have an eternal life? Jesus answers him. He walks away, but since Jesus loved him. So there's this commandment to the rich. Hey, don't get arrogant because you think you have it all. In this day, it was thought, hey, if, you're, if you have it all, if you're healthy and wealthy, you're blessed by God. And if not, there must be sin in your life. And if you'd confess that sin, then you'd be fine. But because you're not healthy and wealthy, God is against you. That was the theology of the day. Guys, that's nowhere close to true. But for those of us that are rich, those of us who are rich, says do not become haughty, but don't place your hope in the uncertainty of riches, but on God, now watch it, who richly provides us everything to enjoy. See, here's the thing. What if we approached our money, as not our money, but God's money that we manage? What if it's not my stuff, but it's his stuff that I manage? That every time that I'm getting ready to spend something, God, is this what you want? Is this what you want me to do with this? He said, you'd be doing that all the time. I know, but it's his, it's not mine. He says, but don't jump to this conclusion that because you have more, that you must have your life put together Because could it be this that the reason that we have extra is that we might be a blessing, not just because we've been blessed. Maybe we're blessed to be a blessing. Maybe we have extra, because now watch the thing he says after that. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Command of scripture. Rich. That's us. What are we supposed to do? Do good, be rich in good works, be generous, ready to share. That's it. I look at that and I go, that's my stuff. And then watch the response. Thus, by doing these things, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. Now, this is where some of you sit and go, wait a minute. James just talked about building a foundation, like like treasure, like building a foundation of treasure, something that's in the future. And that was bad. And now you have Paul saying it's good. Man, yeah, that's why I don't believe in the Bible because it contradicts itself. Wow, you found it. Nice job. Or he's like this. Hey, for those of you who are putting all your hope into this treasure that's going to corrode and die, you got nothing. For those of you that are build your treasure on what? God who richly provides, therefore resulting in good works, being generous, sharing. It's like, well, Brian, I really have a hard time with generosity. Let's be honest. I have a hard time with that. I know, but here's the thing. If I want to be a follower of God, let's just go back to the heart of the gospel. When I say John 3, 16, don't tune out because it's like, I know that verse. Pick another one. I that's the heart of it. For God so loved the world that he what? Gave. And another word for gave is generosity. In other words, for me to be a follower of Jesus, if I'm going to say, I'm to be like God. I want to be so used by God. I have to be generous. You go, man, that's a rule. That's a commandment. Yeah, it's a commandment, but it gets a little bit easier. When Jesus is the priority of my life, Jesus in me and through me, the Holy Spirit actually living in and through me Can I really stop the the generous God who wants to give? If He's the one who has control of me, so by intimate relationship with God, will He not change me so that all of a sudden I become more and more like Him? So it's not a have to; it's a get to. It's not a have to do this; it's I get to do this. And wow, God, you're changing me. When I look at this passage again for years and years and years and years, I didn't look at it because this is for the rich. Until all of a sudden they realize I'm the rich. So God, you're calling me to this. That's storing up treasure for themselves, a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Oh man. You ever notice we'll stand in line for a new phone while calling people on the phone that works to tell them that we're getting a new phone? Or we, or we drive the car to the dealership. Nothing happened to it. We drove it there to get the new one, while the old one worked. You're like Brian, don't go there, right, guys. I'm not going to sit there. If you own a Lexus, good. Can I have a ride? <laughs> like I'm not. Hey, so what car? Can, I'm not going to tell you what car you can have. It's not about this list of what's acceptable or not. I think it comes down to this. You got to answer the question: What is your life? What is it? What is, what is that dash? What are you all about? Early on in James chapter 4, starting verse 1, it says this. This is another one. James just says, not afraid to kind of hit us in the throat. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? It's like, what, do you guys fight? How, what makes you guys fight so much? He's, remember, he's talking to Christians. This isn't non-Christians. And thank goodness we don't fight here. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that, you, that your passions are at war within you? He says, you know what causes you to fight? Because you have all these passions. And they're individual passions. Now, by a show of hands, and I know that some of you guys won't do this. They didn't, some didn't do it in the first service either because you're just little rebels. But here's the thing, or you're afraid. It's like, if I put my hand up too high, it's too charismatic, and I don't like that. It's like, but if I put my, uh, somebody like, if I put my hand up, then people will actually really know me rather than me just showing up to a building to sing. But all of a sudden, Scripture comes and goes, hey, what causes you to fight so much? Is it not the passions that are warring inside of you? How many can sit in there and go, yep, that's me, guilty as charged? But it way up, way up, way up, way up, way up. So 17 of you, the rest of you not sure what you're talking about. So the rest of you are looking at Scripture going, God, you got it wrong. That's not why I fight. It's because I'm always right, they're always wrong. And that's called passions warring inside of you. He goes on, verse two. He says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. Oh, that seems like the right response. (laughs) Might as well go for it. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Well, you don't have because you don't ask. You're like, that's it? I just have to ask God? Give me the lottery. In my car. Bags of money. After service. Well, maybe not right now. Because that's people will take it. But when I get closer, fill that thing with cash. You're like, that's good. In the name of Jesus, just to put a stamp on it. (laughs) Then watch verse 3. You ask, and don't receive because you ask wrongly. What makes it wrong? To spend it on your own passions. Here's the thing. He's sitting there going, why do you fight? Why do you quarrel? Because all these passions are going inside of you. You don't, you covet, you don't get it, so you kill you covet and want but you don't have it you don't have it because you don't ask when you ask you ask wrongly so you don't get it why because you just want to spend it on your passions the things that are causing you to fight you actually think that God's sitting there going yeah let me fulfill that passion so that you can fight more about it so you can have more and you can fight more about it you ever notice an appetite doesn't go away until you kill the appetite The appetite never goes away just because you feed the appetite. You feed it, it subsides for a minute, then it just seems to come back, true? And the more you feed it, the more that it wants. Example, 10 years ago, I'm now 43, made it. Don't know what that means, but I made it. Early 40s. 10 years ago, horribly out of shape. Just because I I lived to eat. And I realized in a moment, I was like, Chili cheese fries are of Jesus. (laughs) French fries, chili. Put those hands together. Jesus. (laughs) I got like, that's it. I mean, I'd have them like a couple times a week with a cheeseburger. And I'd get a real Coke, not diet. What the heck is that? You're saying, are those things sin? No, those things are sin just when I have to have them. And all of a sudden, the appetite got bigger and bigger and bigger, and I became more unhealthy and more unhealthy and more unhealthy. And here I'm telling, I'm telling groups, hundreds of people at one time, going, you can overcome your addiction. God wants to help you. And I couldn't overcome mine. I just fed the appetite, and the appetite got bigger until it controlled me. Praise be to God, he can change lives. Praise be to God, he can break chains. I'm so thankful for that. But feeding the appetite doesn't change anything. It just makes it worse. Why would God... F- why would God fill the appetite, feed the appetite of the passions that cause us to fight with one another? And then watch what he calls them. You adulterous people, good night. Can you imagine if that's how I greeted you when I got up here? Hey, good morning, adulterers. Good morning, adulterous people. Let me open up the word. How can he get away with it? Guys, this is like Old Testament language. You know how often God uses this picture of adulterous people. He'd look at the people of Israel, guys. You guys are you guys are adulterers. He'd be like, okay, I'm I'm the faithful groom and you're the bride, I'm the faithful husband, and you're the wife that's just going out and Ezekiel uses really strong words. It's like you're playing the harlot, you're going after all these idols, and you're replacing me with worthless things. So can you see where James is going with this? He's like, You want, but you don't have. You don't have because you don't ask. And the reason you don't ask is because you ask wrongly because all you want to do is just fill up your passions. Why? Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Welcome to idolatry. You've just stepped into it. And God comes out and goes, you adulterous people. On Thursday nights at flood, midweek surface that happens, um, we're going verse by verse to the book of 1 Samuel. And if you've ever read it, there's that part, if you haven't read it, this is kind of how it goes. There's a part where God has, God has this relation with his people. He's the provider, but the people aren't all about him. And all of a sudden, there's kind of like this revival. And one of those main, main parts that happens is, here the Philistine army comes up against the Israelites, and the people look at Samuel. Samuel's the prophet at the time. They look at Samuel and go, hey, pray on our behalf. And Samuel goes, I got it. He prays to God, and God, it says that God thundered God thundered so loud that it put the Philistine army into confusion to where they start to fight each other, and they start to kill each other, and then the Israelites routed them. And all the people were about God. Oh, we love God, we love God. Look how God came through. God, 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 God. And then it's weird, I think it's into chapter, I think it's chapter 8 to 9 or 7 to 8, one of those. But that gap between chapters is 20 to 25 years, and all of a sudden the people look at Sammy and go, hey, we want a king like everybody else. All the other nations have these kings and man, when the kings show up and they got all their garb on and they have these massive armies, yeah, we want that. And Samuel's hurt. You know he's hurt because all of a sudden as he's like, why would you want this? Don't you understand what will happen if you get a king? And God has to look at Samuel and go, hey, 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 they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Which I'm convinced means this. God knew that Samuel felt rejected. He's like, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Give him a king. So God picks out the king, and he's supposed to be the best of the land. He says that he's taller than everyone else. And I sit there and go, Yes, unless it's Saul. Because I don't want to be connected to him. He didn't do it right the rest of his life. I like it when it's in my favor. He's like, He's tall. He looks the part. He's strong, tall, massive. Yeah. So now it's Saul, now this is his time. It's like, here's the introduction. This is all the fanfare. This is what you wanted. So you jump into 1 Samuel chapter 10. And it says this. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians. And from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God Guys, it's not like he's looking going, but today you've asked for a king. He's like, no, no, no. It's bigger than that. Today you've rejected me. Look what it is that he did before. He says, I brought up Israel out of Egypt. I did that. And I delivered you from Egypt and all the other countries. I did this. But today you've rejected your God who saves you from all calamities and all your distresses. And you said to him, set a king over us. See, when God looks at me and says, you asked for a king. No, 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 no. No, you've rejected me. you rejected me. Guys, when I, when I fall into idolatry, I'm rejecting God. And I'm rejecting his place in my life. It's not just some little thing. God's like, I've done all of these things. And now you're starting to put your hope and trust into What? How much you have, what you wear, what you drive, where you live. Whatever money you think that you have, you're starting to put into that. That's what James is going after super hard. And God is saying, you've replaced me. You've rejected me. I'm the one who provides richly. Don't place your heart into something that corrodes. Into something that ends up in the trash heap. So it comes back to what is your life? How do you answer the question? I mean, seriously, how do you answer that question? Because maybe it needs to be asked a little bit differently. So that dash, what's it about? But I don't want you to walk out. I want any of us to walk out just going, I need to do these things because it's the right thing to do because I'm going to be a good Christian. No, there's always got to be some source. There's got to be a reason for me to do everything. So that's why I think we always have to go back in chapter 4. Wait, what is your life? But I think it even goes deeper than that. And when Paul writes to this church in Colossae, he's he from verses chapter 1, verses 15 and following, he's talking about this unbelievable supremacy of Christ, that Christ is creator, that everything that you see and don't see, he's the one who created it. He's the firstborn. That word firstborn could be translated, he's the pre-existent one over all of creation. He's trying to paint this massive picture of Jesus. Then he gets to verse 18 and he says this, and he, being Jesus, is the head of the church. He's the head of the body of the church. Now let's just stop for just a second. Global church, Jesus is the head. He's in charge. It's his, his church. So now let's get personal. Purpose church, this belongs to Jesus. It's about him. If he's not the one that we are most affectionate about, if if his glory is not what we are most passionate about, then we have replaced ourselves and put ourselves in his place. So is it the pastor's church? No. Is it your church? No. It is his church. And has God placed people in authority over people in the church? Absolutely. But we follow what it is that he says. So think of the last thing that you fought about. Let me ask you a question. Was it for the honor and praise and glory of Jesus? Or was it for the honor, praise, and glory of comfort It is his church. It is his way for his glory. Nobody else's. He is the head. Then he goes, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be, what's the word? Preeminent. You know what it means? Top dog. But this is how we do it. Number one, priority. And then number two, Then number three, number four, we say, he's one of my priorities. No, 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 no. He is the only priority. Followers of Jesus, he should be the only priority. There should be no other priority. Brian, I got responsibilities, I know. But those responsibilities will be done in a way that brings honor to Jesus. It will probably work out a lot better when Jesus is preeminent. Because here's the thing, if Jesus is number one, you can have number two super close to him, guess who can take the place of Jesus anytime? But if Jesus is saying, I want to be preeminent, I'm worthy to be preeminent. Brian, I got kids. I know. Make Jesus preeminent in your life so that you'll be an incredible mom or dad. I got a spouse. I know. Make Jesus preeminent so you'll be an incredible spouse. Brian, I'm single. Make Jesus preeminent so you'll be incredible at being single. Like, oh, that doesn't work. Jesus is not a rental car. You don't test drive Jesus. Brian, I did that for like two weeks. Nothing changed. (laughs) Maybe it's because you just tried it. You just test drove it. Nah, nothing's changed. In fact, it got harder. Yeah, welcome to following Jesus. Oh, it's worth it though. See, not, he's not one of my priorities. He's supposed to be the only one, preeminent. Nothing else compares to him. Everything impacted by his preeminence. Because he's worthy of it. When Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, well, he's under house arrest. And there might be times where he's got some freedom, he can roam, kind of roam around. And there's other times where he's, he might have been chained to a Praetorian guard. Praetorian guard's like the Navy SEALs of the day. And I always just picture like Paul just, every time somebody came, he just preached. But I I don't know. I'm starting to wonder when it says in the beginning of Philippians that said the whole Praetorian guard knew why he was in chains. They knew why he was there because he loved Jesus. I'm thinking the only reason that they would know this because they actually listened to him. But I wonder how often Paul just sat down and somebody would walk in. He's like, oh man, it's so good to see you again. Hey, how's your life? And knew everything about their family, knew everything about their dreams and their goals. And he just had a conversation with them. And as he listened to the emptiness of their lives, he's just sitting there going, oh man, you're missing it. And what if it was through conversation? He's like, oh, you're missing it. And they go, okay, what am I missing? What's it all about? What do you do this for? You're in chains. Why would you voluntarily do this to yourself? What are you about? And I wonder if that's where he got the the one line. Oh man, for me, how do I put it? For me to live is Christ." Oh, and to die, that's even better. That's great. And I wonder why I do put that part in. Unless, like, unless the guard like pulls out a little knife. He's like, Don't you dare start preaching about Jesus. Oh, to die? Yeah, do it. I love that. Why? Because when I die, I get to be with Jesus. But if I don't, I'm gonna I'm gonna be serving him because it's important for me to be here. But for, he says, for me to live as Christ, he doesn't say for me to live as Christ and for me to live as Christ. Why is that so important? Because where my treasure is, that's where my heart will be. And if my heart is connected to anything but Jesus, it's connected to something that God never intended it to be devoted or committed to. And if it's not committed to Jesus, it's gonna be committed to something or someone else. And for the rich, the temptation our stuff and whatever it takes to get more why? because the appetite needs to be fed and I don't feel fulfilled until I get more and more and more and more as you see where Jesus is saying maybe it has less to do with what is your life and really comes down to who is your life because what my life is about will always be connected and dictated by who my life is about it's always about that and sometimes we're missing this. So if somebody walked up and said, hey, what are you about? Why do you do what you do? I mean, why do you give like you give? Like I'm watching your generosity, it makes no sense. Like you get nothing out of this. You say, well, I'm supposed to. If I don't, God will get pissed. <laughs> and that's not what he are wanting. Why do you give? Because God gave me everything. He gave me everything. I mean, he showed ultimate generosity. How could I not follow the steps of my father? I give because he gave. I give that they would enjoy because he gave me all things that I might enjoy all things. So maybe it comes down to who more than what. Not what is your life? Who is your life? Worship team is going to come back up. I say, "Was well, it worth?" I mean, Brian, seriously. I'm going to give this to Jesus, and especially for those that aren't a follower of Jesus. Like, what's so great about him? As the worship team comes back up, let me just read out of Psalm 74. It says this, yet God, my king, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. And then he starts, direct, he starts talking directly to God says, you divided the sea by your might. I mean, just stop there for just a second. He's going back to the Exodus. He's going back when the Israelites go across the Red Sea. And he's like, you, you just split it. I mean, you just made the sea get out of the way. And I just think that's impressive. And I, isn't it just like God that when he does that, he doesn't pick the shallow part. Like this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. I'm convinced he took him to the deepest. The part that's three quarters of a mile deep, I think he took him to that place. He's like, this is where we're going to split it. And you're going to go down. You're going to look to the side. You're going to see all this stuff. And you're going, wait, my God did this. Why would it be so impressive? Because God is doing this to remind them that when you go into the wilderness, when you face the things, I'm the one who divided the sea. And if I can do that, I can do anything. Why does God keep bringing up the past to encourage us that he's got the future? As good as God has been, he will always be that good. He can never not be good. So it's like, oh, okay, so you divided the, the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the water. Is anyone thankful for that? You're like, I don't believe in sea monsters. Yes, you do. You do. How do I know? Because when you go in the water at the beach and you get hit or scraped or some little piece of seaweed slithers past your leg, you're not sitting there going, seaweed. You're sitting there going, what the? And then you freak out. God, protect me from the Leviathan. (laughs) And then he brings up the Leviathan. You crush the heads of of Leviathan. You're like, what is that? I don't know, but it sounds nasty. He says, you gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams, Yours is the day. Yours also is the night. I don't, that hit me. This was a quiet time a couple weeks ago. That hit me so long. He owns the day. Guys, you, some of you own a Volvo. God owns the day and the night. He's like, okay, so... The fact the sun rose, it didn't really rise because we're just spinning at 1,000 miles an hour. It's there. We weren't going, God, please, please bring the sun up today. Please, you didn't want the sun to come up today. God, don't let it come up. I want to go back to bed. We take for granted the sun. We take for granted the moon. He's like, I own the day. I own the night. You've established the heavenly lights and the sun. You've established it. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. Oh, on top of that, yeah, you have made summer and winter. You're gonna control all the seasons. Everything happens because of you. Or you can worship your stuff that corrodes and it's gonna end, in a, and it's gonna end up in a trash heap. Who is your life Your answer to that question will dictate what your life is all about. I'm convinced that's what James was bringing up. Not this hatred for the rich, just those who worship it. I pray for you all. I pray for me and pray for us. God, you are worthy. You're worthy you're worthy of everything of our adoration it shouldn't be something that you have to convince us of it's just truth and you're so good even when we don't understand you you are so good so God as we sing to you I pray that it's true worship us pouring our our hearts out before you humbled before you loving you singing praises and loving with each other just to you that you are the who that we live for. You are the who that we are about and you'll dictate everything about the what. So God, as we sing to you, to you be all the praise, all the glory and all the honor for you alone are worthy. We pray this in Jesus' name and everyone who agrees says, Amen. Love you all more than you know.